that might make history. So here I am with Melissa, the co-founder of Just Kick It and longtime Man United fan. Melissa, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be on Arsenal Vault. It's awesome. been a podcast that I've been listening to for a while. Much appreciated, honestly. So initially this interview was supposed to be about kind of you as a Manchester United fan and how you view Arsenal from the outside. But as you know, as most of the footballing world is, already knows, there's been a lot going on within the last three to four days because of the quote-unquote Super League. But before we even get into any of that, um, just explain to the folks at home how long you've been a Manchester United fan and a brief summary of what Just Kick It is. I know we spoke a little bit off the pod about you know how the pandemic affected it as, as it has affected everything else in the world, but you know what it, what it what it does, I guess. Yeah, no, sure. Absolutely. So I've been a Manchester United fan, I want to say, since Ronaldo went there from Sporting. So I, I actually don't even remember how long ago that is at this point. But right. I'm sure for most people, they can kind of recall. So I, I guess I want to say since since maybe I was 10 or 11, I, I think that's about the gauge. Um, So maybe like 20 years. That's quite a long time, honestly. And as much as I want to deep dive into that, I think as much as you know, we have to kind of talk about the Super League. <laughs> um, so, I mean, the, the, the announcement came late Sunday night, I guess late Sunday night UK time, um, because the way I found out was during the afternoon when Arsenal uh, was one of the clubs that posted it onto their social media about how they are, you know, the founding members of this Super League. Um, and for those of you who, for some reason, have been living under a rock, um, late Sunday night, a lot of the big, let's let's say, I'm going to put a quote around big because Arsenal are in it and Tonham are in it or whatever it was. Um, but it's basically Real Madrid, Manchester United, Liverpool, Juventus, uh, Barcelona, uh, Atletico Madrid, uh, Inter, AC Milan, and uh, Manchester United, Chelsea, Tonham, and Arsenal. And with some who have, well, at the time had not decided um, what was your initial initial reaction, Melissa, when you kind of started, kind of new, started kind of flooding in of all these teams announcing that they were the founding members of the uh, Super League? So when I first discovered about, or when I first heard about Super League, um, obviously, like you mentioned, it was very questionable, some of these teams. So, for example, Spurs was in it. And I'm like, but wait a minute. Um they haven't really won anything. Yeah, they've made some advancements in the recent years, but they're not really a club that I would say, you know, belongs in the Super League. So that was my very initial thought process. I was like this this doesn't make any sense. There's not very there are not very strong connections um as to why all these teams belong in Super League. Right? In addition to that, I was like, okay, so what the hell is this thing and why does it exist? Um, mm. So you can only ingest so much information until a point you develop your own opinion. And I was just like, okay, this sounds ridiculous. How is this going to unfold? And I don't see fans taking this lightly. No, yeah, I mean the backlash was honestly. I don't think it's. A, I've ever, I don't think I've ever seen something quite like this. One, the Super League in it of itself was something I've never seen before. Um, there have always been rumors about it, right? I think for the last two or so years, it's always been rumors yes. about, you know, the big teams going to a league of their own and doing what they want to do. Um, but this was, um, this was kind of a even if it even if it were to have gone through, right? It was a poor, a poor PR stunt, a poor it was poorly strategically done in terms of how the information uh, was given to the supporters. You know, it was just. You know, if you're if I'm an Arsenal supporter living in London, this came out probably around 11 p.m. You know, I got it here in the afternoon. UK is about five hours or so ahead. Um, it's almost as if they didn't want the supporters to see it right away. Um, and it just didn't seem like they had a good handle on it from from the beginning, whether this had the potential to be something actually good, which I don't see it happening. Mm -hmm. um, but they really didn't invest as much time into how they were going to present it properly um what how did you view that i you know honestly 
isn't that when all the groundbreaking shaking news comes out <laughs> is in the middle of the night for people so that they don't find right. out until the next day so i think it, it it was probably strategic on their part and they were like we'll just deal with the backlash in the morning i'm sure they expected it just by the reaction of the people responsible days later yeah so let's kind of try i kind of tried to look at it from what it what it what what is it actually essentially so from the article that i was reading from the new york times it goes as follows the 20 teams will be split into two divisions 10 teams each then play one another home and away at the end of the regular season the top four clubs in each division will progress to a knockout round that will be familiar to the viewers of the champions league the difference is that those playoffs will be held over the course of four weeks at the end of the season um, and additionally, a good and important note is the founding members do not get eliminated. Um, and I think this is where a big part of the backlash came from was that one, it, it's in my view, it looked like it was meant to replace the Champions League um, by taking them out of that competition and essentially creating their own competition. Um, but the biggest part people didn't like was the fact that founding members do not get eliminated. Um, and it, it almost takes away the pure competitive competitiveness of the sport of football which is that you are in the champions league or whatever you know competition based on merit what you've done in that domestic season whether it's you win the title you win the uh you know in arsenal's case to, for the europa league they won the fa cup um all these different things that you know winners of the champions league go and play for the uh, club world cups you know it's based essentially always on merit and so the fact that founding members do not get el- eliminated you kind of take the whole essence of football out of the equation and create more of a product. Yeah, no, 100%. And I think this goes back to our opening discussion to this, which of these clubs really belong to Mm. stay in it and not be kicked out. The whole idea of competition is so that you can improve yourself. And as a Manchester United fan myself, um, we've been slacking a lot in the past couple of years the idea and the concept of them being able to just stay in a competition and compete as much as they like without real repercussions sounds like my team will never really feel the urgency to improve. That's a really good point. And, you know, Arsenal, as much as, 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 you know, people laugh at them for being the Europa League, et cetera, um, this, there is a question of, why is Arsenal in it, right? They are not the team that they once were. Um, Manchester United, you know, whether which way, whichever way you look at it, you know, Arsenal won the FA Cup in the Community Shield. Manchester United haven't won anything under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Um, whichever way you try to balance it, it's almost like this is. Ba- it kind of felt like to me it was based on who has the most followers on Twitter, almost like who has the biggest Twitter presence, or who has the <laughs> biggest social media presence. Um, and if I'm um, Fiorentino Perez. The guy who supposed you know the Real Madrid president who supposedly kind of uh, controlled all this. This was his project essentially. It kind of seems like he went for the ones or the names that would draw in the most numbers, right? It wasn't really based, you know, on this like we said, like mm-hmm. this merit-based thing. Like who has who is the most successful team? Um, you know, let's say you know you have your Leicesters and your West Ham's in the Premier League who are doing extremely well this season and look like they're poised for a uh, Champions League spot. But if you create a competition called the European Super League. Do you think you're going to get more eyes of Arsenal versus Barcelona or West Ham versus Barcelona? You know what I mean? Like, what would what would create a crowd for it? What mm-hmm. would create a viewership for it? And I think that's kind of like the angle they were going for. I'm not saying I agree with it, um, but this does seem like more of a mm-hmm. marketable product to what Fiorentino Perez says, the 16 to 18 to 24, 25-year-olds that are so uh, supposedly getting bored of football. Um and I'm sure I speak for both of us when we say we're not essentially getting bored of football, but maybe he's trying to grasp on onto that casual audience or casual viewer that doesn't necessarily have a team yet, but they are they are imposed by the idea yeah. of watching Arsenal or Manchester United versus Real Madrid every week kind of thing. Yeah, no, 100%. And to be honest... I feel like what really draws the attention of casual viewers is kind of seeing those shocking Cinderella moments. So you mentioning West Ham and Leicester City. Leicester City, I think, is a very prime example of what happens when you allow competition to play out well. Um, obviously, they rose through through the ranks. 
They won the title. They went on to Champions League themselves. And they're pretty standard. They're like a pretty standard up top, top five, top six team now since they've come into the Premier League and won the title. I, I think they're like a good case study to as to why competition should constantly be promoted in an open source manner and not the closed source manner in which the Super League would be. That's the, the Leicester is actually a good point because of the fact it's it's almost like that Cinderella story of them winning the Premier League, right? Um, they were previously mm-hmm. in, in the lower tier um, and they came up to the Premier League and, and, you know, they won the title against, you know, Arsenal were second that year, but they, they beat the top teams. They did what they had to do. Um, Jimmy Vardy came from the lower tiers. You know what I mean? It's a, it's that kind of feel good story where it's like, wow, they, they were able to do it. Um, and the fact that they came from the bottom to the top is kind of a, a it just it proves to why the Premier League and why leagues like this um, thrive so well when it comes to viewership. Why, you know, you, you know, you, you have this feeling inside of you, whether you're an Arsenal or Manchester United fan, that, you know, a Burnley can be one of the top four teams. A Fulham can be one of the top four teams because there's always a sense of competition that you never know what's going to happen. Um, and it happens organically, right? It doesn't happen just because they're in there mm-hmm. in the competition they were chosen because they have earned their place from the second division to the Premier League. And th- whatever they do is based on their own merit. Um, yeah, 100%. And to to be honest and not try to, trying to stray away yeah. from Premier League, but since... We're basically talking about the entirety of Europe at this point. Um, When they said the Super League, I instantly started thinking, I'm like, oh my God, this sounds like La Liga, not to knock La Liga, but you've got three teams that dominate the table every year. And it gets to a point where it kind of gets boring um, and you don't want to continue to watch. So even though they think that it would entice like the casual viewer, Based on fans' reactions, obviously they would lose their core audience, which ends up shelling out the most money. So the the pro definitely does not outweigh the con, essentially. Shelling out the money, that's actually a good way to segue, is that at the end of the day, this is obviously about money, right? What would draw in the most viewership? What would pay the most bucks? Um and I remember I was listening to another pod and they had mentioned that, you know, China is a market that a lot of people want to tap into when it comes to football. Um, and so what how can you create a product that will tap into that market of maybe not um, Fulham versus Manchester City? Because you think Manchester City is going to blow them out. So no one's really going to watch that. But what if it's Manchester City against Real Madrid? You know what I mean? Um, that will obviously glue a lot more eyeballs and. To go over this kind of arch theme of the Super League, it's 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 almost hypocritical to see UEFA, FIFA, Sky Sports kind of go through kind of criticizing the Super League. And I understand, obviously, they do have a point, but it's not like UEFA and FIFA are these angels, right, that have done everything mm-hmm. correctly. You know, I mentioned the Qatar World Cup, right? There's been... Yes. A number of deaths. There's been a number of human rights violations, but they're still going through with it. Um, UEFA and their financial fair play has been an absolute joke. There has been no instance of anything like that ever actually being re- enforced. You know, Chelsea have their oil money, Manchester City, PSG. When you look at the two, all four semifinalists of the Champions League, you have Real Madrid, then you have PSG, Man City, and then Chelsea. Three of them you know, you can kind of know that they're backed by these kind of, um, what do you want to call them? Um, like oil or money oligarchs, right? They, they, they have a heavily, uh, heavy amount of investment to that club to buy the players that they want to buy the players that they need. They spend hundreds of millions of, of, of money every year to get these players. And it's like, and I'm not saying Arsenal and I'm going to bring Arsenal, but I'm not saying that they're perfect. Right. But Arsenal have a rich owner, that one doesn't pump money into it but arsenal have been known to kind of i feel like they're kind of they just follow the rules a little bit too much um Mm -hmm. and that has them in ninth place in the premier league you know what i mean so i just kind of don't agree with kind of how wefa fifa and even sky sports because they were the ones during the pandemic even though we are still in one they're the ones who were charging 15 pounds per match on pay-per-view to watch any uh premier league game um 
and that obviously didn't that actually had a good amount of backlash not as much as super league but this idea of money hungry is not just solely from or not solely pinpointed onto the super league yep 100 percent. and this i guess fast forward now it's today and almost nearly every team has backed out now um regardless of how much they have been pitched that they'd make x amount or whatever the case may be due to um the cries and the voices of fans um and it's it's really interesting that the response from basically the parties responsible have kind of been very you know we're sorry we made a mistake but nothing like we'll change the structure we'll do better so it, it's almost a connection as to uh, UEFA and FIFA, how very money hungry or how the model of how they support the sport is obviously monetarily driven. And not to say that, you know, they're a business at the end of the day or a type of business at the end of the day. So they have to be uh, cognizant of the fact that they have to make money. But when money becomes the main driver is when we see things like this happen. And when money is the main driver, fans get weak apologies that don't feel like apologies yeah i agree and it's it's always it's kind of a shame that it it requires if it doesn't involve any monetary value to it then it's almost as if no one really well the higher-ups don't really care right i mean uh, patrick banford from leeds came out i think it was either yesterday or the day before saying you know it's it's a shame that there's never this much uproar when it comes to things like racism, right? Players getting racially abused every other week on social media. And it's always like, you know, it's always and and I don't, I'm not saying it's incorrect, but it's always kind of the bullshit of we'll, we'll take a knee, you know, we'll put no, say no to racism on our arm sleeve. Um, you know, things to kind of quell the fans, right? Essentially to say, Hey, you know, we did this. Um, but as soon as the money comes into play and UEFA and all these people are like, well, we're about to lose our money. It's like, we're going to sue you. We're going to sue every, sue every Premier League team. We're going to deduct points. We're going to take away this. And it's like, where is this type of urgency when it comes to player welfare and their well-beings? Right. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's like you said, they kind of do just enough to keep fans quiet and calm. Um, but when it comes to matters of money and wealth and revenue, um, they take a completely different approach. Exactly. And so for kind of looking at this from the outside looking in, right? So if you're if you're one of the you know, quote unquote founding members, you have or you stand to make 400 million around 400 million just to secure a, f a solid foundation and to kind of um, almost prepare yourself for the league in a way. And so for Arsenal specifically, I mean, look, I'm not, I'm not going to sit here and argue that Arsenal are a big team and blah, blah, blah. I think they have great history. I think they are on their way back to what they were. Um, so be it a very, a very large hill to climb. But if I'm staying crunky and I'm looking at this from someone who is American, who doesn't give a shit about football, who doesn't really care about the club or the, its traditions or its values, I see Arsenal as solely as an investment opportunity to make me money. I'm looking at the Super League and saying, obviously, these guys did their research and in, in the figures and what, what what projected revenue they would make overall. Um, I would see this and I would say this is a really good idea. And... Obviously, I personally don't think that, but as a businessman, I would see this and say, Arsenal, first of all, my investment has been doing shit. We're ninth in the Premier League. We're not getting Champions League anytime soon. Um, we're all hinging it on the Europa League. Um, if I have a chance to make a shit ton of money back from this, why wouldn't I? Mm -hmm. And it's like, I it's I, I get where where that, I, that type of idea is coming from, but you... One of the big things about Stan Kroenke and the Kroenkes in general since they bought complete ownership of Arsenal is that they just don't really show that they care with what values and traditions and what Arsenal is truly meant to be at all. And it seems like the Super League was their way of getting as much money in return without actually thinking about what the fans truly want. 
Yep. I mean, I know the other big six clubs are in the same situation, but with Manchester United um, and their ownership, how do you how do you view that? I think it's very similar, and for for us, I feel like we we've, we've always tend to throw our money at problems, like buying Paul Pogba. Not that he's not a great player, but he's obviously had some inconsistencies of being within the top team, sometimes not even being on the bench, sometimes he plays really well, other times he's not very instrumental. He's he's had quite different roles. Um, we've spent money on different number sevens throughout the years that most like been failures, Di Maria, uh, Depay. So I've always felt like that we've been um, a club that throws our money at problems. Um, so of course, at, at the biggest opportunity to make some of that money back, not that we don't have the money, uh, I believe we have a ton of money. Um, but I know the pandemic and COVID has really hit everyone hard since uh, their main revenue stream being season ticket holders and people coming out to games. Um, that's not really happening right now. Um, so for me to see them do something like that, I'm like, why am I even surprised? Um, for a long time now, I just feel like the ownership of the club has never really been in the best interest um, of our club or of the players or our success. And to be really honest, in America, we create these these sports teams and sports models so that the owners can always make money back. But I don't believe that's what the core essence of soccer is about, especially in Europe and other places around the world. We try to do that in the United States, but unfortunately, you know, we don't really have the following in the United States to do that. But in countries that can do that, it should never be about the money, especially since the history of these clubs didn't start that way. I, I think that's actually a really, really good point is that a lot of these clubs did not start as these super teams these big teams that we know them now um one of the and i'm not saying that europe is doing everything perfectly right i mean there there are obviously flaws in um, a lot of systems but what i always liked about the european style of football was that you can always look at a couple of teams and say oh that guy came from the third tier division that guy came from the fourth tier division or something like that he was picked up right um it always feels mm -hmm. like and correct me if i'm wrong but i always feel like with here it's like you need to go to a D. You have to go to school, to a D one school to get picked up by the you know NBA or the NFL or whatever it may be, right? It's not like we have tiered divisions here. Well, not enough to the point where it's like yep. a strong div a division. It's very usually very small amateur teams um, that try to compete in these kind of like makeshift leagues that don't sometimes don't even last that long. Um, but here it's like you got to go to a D one school. You have to go to a university. Um, and then you stay there for a couple of years and you hope that you get picked up. Right. Um, while, you know, in England, you know, you could play in the fifth division and there are scouts there kind of looking right. They're always looking tier fourth tier, third tier, mostly, mostly second tier as well. And there, there, there are always fans there, like thousands of fans, even for the second tier. Anytime I put on a second uh, division game, obviously pre pandemic, these stadiums were packed usually. Um, and so the model about Europe is what I like is that there's always like this idea of like you can start at the bottom and you can actually work your way up. Um, and a lot of these teams were built by like, uh, for example, Arsenal were built, I think in the 1800s by just normal people, like just, um, I think it was actually a gun factory, but either way, the fact that Arsenal in it of itself started from like this very small group of people into becoming what it is today, it shows that, that is how we want it to almost be that fans have this connection with the club, but also that fans have a voice in what goes on at the club. And when you have these ownerships from, and I'm not saying just because the team is from England, the owners need to be English. But if you have an owner that has or shares the same ideals as you, you don't really fall into this situation where you're fighting for your club to get out of a super league because they want the money. Mm -hmm. uh, go ahead. Yeah, and I think we I think we see that very much in common with a lot of the American owners. They come in not understanding the values, and I don't want to discredit or knock any of the American owners too much, but overall, we both live in America, so we do understand that um, the 
prominence of certain sports rank way higher than soccer. Therefore, they're, they don't really feel this instillment of um, the values that soccer offers or the values of what certain teams offer. Um, each of the clubs kind of have their own motto or their own values. That's something that doesn't really exist in the sports model in the United States. It's kind of like your team, you're from this state. Maybe you symbolize like whatever the right. state is about or like the culture, the background of the state, um, which varies very minimally, but that's about it, right? And soccer, part of soccer teams in other countries, even the UK, uh, Spain, there's this value, this sense and meaning um, to the start of each of those teams. And you come in and you have an American owner that hasn't really taken the time to understand the values, right? And that goes back to you saying, like, even for Arsenal, the, do the owners have Arsenal's values and best interests in mind? And it doesn't seem like that's the case. I think for a lot of teams, that's actually the case, honestly, if we're keeping it simple. A lot of the cases is that the, the, the poor, not the, but the sad negative part of football and these teams, right, these big teams is that there is a market there to make money. Uh, sim- simple as that. There's always a market to make money. And for and like you said, like you mentioned, for years it's always felt like they kind of just do enough to write out whatever PR stunt they're trying to do. Um, for Arsenal, it was probably when Stan Kroenke got full ownership of the club, when they slowly removed people from the board that were former players. Um, all this stuff, when they fired the fucking mascot. Um, and then, you know, a week later they got... Thomas Partey for 50 mil cash. You know what I mean? You know, and it's like, you kind of try to justify it as like, okay, well, this is business or whatever. Um, But there's always a a feeling in the back of your mind, like this is not right. This isn't really how I want my football club to be run. But money talks and KSE is the primary owner or the full owner of Arsenal. And whether you like it or not, their interest is to make money, right? They KSC has sports teams all around the world, uh, mainly the United States with the LA Rams. I think they are, uh, and his goal is to make money. That's that's all it is. And so, one of the things that one of the things that Arsene Wenger told us when he left the club was to all the Arsenal lovers, take care of the values of the club. Um, and one of the great things that I really liked about not not only myself but the fans in general was that we didn't. We didn't agree with the Super League, right? Because um, we knew that this is not what the club stands for. We knew that this was not what Arsene Wenger would have wanted for the club. It's not we know what the club would have actually wanted. Um, and it, I think as fans, sometimes it's it's difficult for us to blame the owners but not the club, right? Um, sometimes people say, I hate my club because they're doing this. But it's like, no, you love your club. You love what they're about. You love the values of that club. You just hate the owners that are doing it behind the face of the club, right? Um, KS Stan Kroenke has not come out at all face. Like, these people never came out once. Like, the owners never came out once in front of the public to say, hey, we're sorry. Um, I know Liver- I think Liverpool's owner did, right? Um, but a lot of these owners, they hide behind the managers. And the managers themselves are like, I don't know. We didn't. They didn't really tell us. We found out with everybody else. And they just completely throw them under the bus in such a disrespectful yep. manner. And it's it's an embarrassment to every single club. You know, Manchester United, Chelsea, Man City. You know, I, you know, obviously I'm not fans of that team. But it's like, have some decency. Have some respect. You know, you, you chose to go and be into the Super League. Um, and now you don't want to answer for your mistakes. But you want to use the club to send out a tweet about an apology. Right? Saying, hey, we messed up. But sorry, you know what I mean. Sorry, whatever. Uh, not that's gonna, nothing's gonna change. We're just not gonna be in it. But just that's our bad. Um, and it's one of the, one of the things I have here was yeah. How much of a how, what kind of relational ramification is there gonna be? I mean, not not just for Arsenal and KSC, but for all for you know Man United and the Glazers or Liverpool and their ownership, Man City and their ownership. You know how? You know, let's say it's irreparable, right? But does it really matter if it's irreparable? Fans will still buy the jerseys. Fans will still go to the games. Fans will still pay to to, to go see their teams, um, pay for the merchandise, whatever it is. So, in your opinion, does it really matter if 
the relationship is irreparable? Right. So I guess from my perspective, my distaste or dislike for the owners has gradually been growing over time. Um, just by the way they treat our coaches and our players. Um, my perspective is that yes, people, people will continue to do what they do. Um, consume whatever products they output because they're fans of the club and they'll ride and die with their club. Uh, but I do think that the growing distrust that many fans have had has kind of reached the point where they're like, yeah, you know, we'll still go to the games. We'll still support the club. But I think there will probably be a lot more questions had around uh, the decisions that they make. Uh, whether it's letting go of a coach. Um, sometimes letting go of, go of a coach is um, justifiable. And sometimes it's it's very sporadic, maybe due to some inconsistencies, but some of those inconsistencies may not completely justify you terminating the contract of the coach as early as you thought you did. I'm sure everyone has seen how many coaches that we've gone through in the past decade. And the coaches, I feel like, have only gotten worse and worse. I know for Arsenal, it's a different story because you guys had Wenger for a very long time. And then maybe you had one or two co like you, two coaches after that, right? You haven't had a large variety of coaches within the past two decades. Yeah, I mean, with what Arsene Wenger did, it's kind of hard to ever replicate that in a football club, probably ever again in modern day with the amount of money that's pumped into it and the importance that results in trophies you know i think you know i've always said that I kind of admired chelsea's model of being absolutely ruthless with their coaches coaches like they'll they'll fire anybody even after you win a trophy yep. we'll fire you like we don't care <laughs> we want we want to <laughs> yes they've always been that it way does. you know what it works for them i don't they've they've made it work for them but i think for clubs like ours like arsenal and manchester united have a lot in common in the sense that we both had coaches that reigned for a very long time and won titles for quite some decent time, right? Um, between Wenger and Ferguson, both of them leaving the club left huge shoes to fill. Exactly. And, you know, what's nice about Sir Alex Ferguson and Arsene Wenger is that they really were the embodiment of the club that they coached, right? It wasn't just from they're good coaches right. and they know how to get the best out of players, but, you know... I can't speak too much on Sir Alex Ferguson. Um, I know he like he was an amazing coach, but with Arsene Wenger, obviously, since I'm an Arsenal fan, is even when he spoke about non-footballing things, I I listened to him. I found him philosophically incredible. Like he cared about players' well-being. He cared about doing what he felt was right for the club, and he cared about the overall human right. And I think what every Arsenal right. fan loved about Arsenal and why a lot of Arsenal fans now really came to the club. Now, obviously, you know, we had the Invincibles and everything, but they stayed with Arsenal was because of just how incredibly well-spoken Arsene Wenger was um, about how he was almost somebody you can relate to or you can admire, even if you don't like Arsenal, right? I mean, obviously, he had his flaws when it came to coaching, mm -hmm. but... One of the things people always tell you is that they respected Arsene Wenger for the thing. And now he's working at FIFA and he's on being sports and everything. But even now, like I bought his book just because um, his, his biography book, just because I'm like, I, I just truly admire this person and how and I'm not sure how far I want to go with this. But whether he embodied Arsenal, or Arsenal embodied him, you know, it's really it's really he's, he's that connected <laughs> to the club. Where I'm like, I yeah. I feel like sometimes I just want to thank him because I feel like Arsenal would not be the club of, of traditions and values and class if it wasn't for him. Right. So mentally trying to bring this mm. all full circle to some extent, we've kind of talked about how, you know, this whole Super League stemmed from the idea of money. Then we kind of went back in time to when our clubs were kind of very prosperous and it wasn't always about money and going back to something you said not too long ago is 
when um, the new owners for Arsenal came in and fully bought out Arsenal, they started kind of booting former players off the board. So I feel like to round this all out a little bit, um, this whole apology thing, it, it really doesn't do anything for us. It's it's like air. Like, you, you've reassured me nothing. And there needs to be actual structural changes made. And as we've seen with coaches who may not be owners but have strong influence on the motto and values of the club um they were really good for the pl- the fans and the integrity of the club and i feel like the way forward from here and i i don't think it'll be taken is to bring back values like that to these clubs and that's the only way you'll actually earn the trust of fans is if you bring in people and i feel like it has to be people of the past who have done good by the club um, because at this point we won't trust anyone new coming in because we've been really jaded. Right. And it almost feels like an image repair at this point, right? Bring back somebody that the people actually trust, but just because the relationship with the current, you know, owners has been just so bad, honestly, right. just to keep it simple, it's just been that bad. And we're, you know, we're talking about how football has, is a product for, or these teams have become just a product to sell. Um, and so despite all the backlash, despite everything going on, I mean, how there is just, there is unfortunately just too much money or too much possible money to be made in these clubs where I don't see KSE or the Glazers selling Arsenal or selling Manchester United at any point. Right. No matter how badly no matter how badly they mess everything up, no matter how, even if they went to the Super League, even if, no matter how, no matter the choices they make, there's always going to be a certain section of that uh, team population that will always buy or always support that club. Yep. You know, we talked about people that said that walk away. You know, you yourself said, you know, that this taste with the owners has really started to, you know, almost create like um... yeah you know i honestly had like a moment of reflection in the past mm. few days where i was like you guys are about to leave all your history behind there is no doubt in me that i will jump ship if you do this yeah i mean it's it's really and it's it's a hard it's something it's you call it you know you said you had a reflection it's a hard reflection to have for a lot of fans i mean I'm in my 20s. There are people who have been following Arsenal since the, for 40 years, 50 years, 60 years. And to yeah. and for them to say, I'm thinking about walking away, that's a hard thing to do because people say it's just a sport. It's just a f- sports team. But when you've been through the mill with these teams, through the good and the bad, and when you follow teams like Manchester and Arsenal who are built on these, you know, values and traditions of having class and decency um a lot of these clubs do um charity work right um and maybe one of their fans or one of the or or, or those recipients of that charity work right and to say that by joining the super league you are leaving everything that this club the club has worked so hard for to create the community relationships with everyone around London and Manchester, um, all the people you've helped in, in, in children's hospitals, all the charity work you've done for food banks and all this, um, you are willing to throw that all away for a Super League. And it's at that point where mm-hmm. you have to really think, is it is this really, not that this isn't the club, but like, has it evolved to a point where it's now just the ownership versus the actual club because right. again these clubs have the club itself holds incredible traditions and values to all of us in our own respective rights um and this is where kind of the point that i was trying to make with you know um it, you got to blame the owners and not the club because the club itself is an incredible thing that yep. stands for a lot but the owners are the ones that are doing it in and hiding behind the club um and it's hard Right, exactly. Using mm. coaches as scapegoats, which they've often done. I I personally feel like we've used firing our coaches as scapegoats for right. our poor decision making of buying players uh, very abruptly to solve our problems and throwing money. Like the amount of money that we played for, we paid for McGuire. Granted, you know we needed um, a center back, and we were 
um, in dire need of repairing the defensive line, but like the the decision to just do it so spontaneously instead of building it years prior because this wasn't a new problem. We've had problems with the defense for many years, and suddenly they bring in a coach and they're like, all right, we're going to buy this guy for like 85 million pounds. Let's do it. And boom. And I, I get that, you know, sometimes the coaches have some say, but for the most part, I feel like it's the directive of the club for all these crazy decisions that we've made. Um, and that's, that's what makes me feel like, um, they're using our coaches as scapegoats. It's like, okay, well, we spent all this money on these players, make it work. If you can't make it work, we're going to terminate you before your contract. And I get, you know, that's worked for Chelsea before, but I feel like it just doesn't fly right for clubs like Arsenal and, um, Manchester United. When it, when it comes to Chelsea, I always tell my Chelsea friends that I admire them the the recruitment process of Chelsea because it always seems like no matter how many times they fire a coach they have enough of a, a core amount of good players that any coach can come in and do something right because yes. they just recruit so well that the versatility of the players works with just about any coach to a certain extent so if you want to play defensive or attacking football you have the players there that can kind of fit you can kind of pick and choose where they fit that criteria and Going back to this kind of Sir Allison, Arsene Wenger, you know, Arsene Wenger, I'll speak on Arsene Wenger because that's what I can speak on, but, you know, he ran the club, right? He he was the one who had the final decision yep. and everything. And going off of your point where we kind of, we will terminate or we'll, we'll sack coaches because of poor results or even if the board does something dumb, like the Harry Maguire situation, he was probably too expensive and that should have been... uh. That should have been planned far in advance when you realized that your defense was aging or Vidic was leaving far, far beyond that. Um, you should have had an ideal replacement. And I, I agree that sometimes I think that they buy players just... And it's similar to the whole um, racism thing where they kind of just do enough to get the fans quelled. They kind of just, just to, they get them to shut up. Like, we need players... Um, there never does seem to be a plan in place to, to properly get these players right um, at a, right at the right age, at the right price, at the right, you know, whatever, at the right position. Usually it's like, you know, I guess with Manchester United, you know, we really need a good center back. We, we like we're, the center backs we have are terrible. Um, and you guys are just kind of buying players just to fill the holes, just to say, okay, we got somebody. Um, is he good? Is he going to do the job? Is he going to fit well into the system? I don't know. We'll get the coach to figure that out. But, it does never feels like there's a proper right. plan in place to to actually have the club move forward. It's always like we're gonna throw money at the problem, um, but in terms of the future of the club and the future of the results and the future of the direct success of the club and the money that would come with it, it's like no, we don't really care about that part. We just kind of want you guys to keep buying season tickets right. and filling the stadiums to watch the team that you like because we know that no matter what we do you're always going to be there and you're always going to buy this product. Right. And I feel like that price tag sometimes unnecessarily high that we put on players sometimes creates this additional right. hype. Like, Whoa, we just bought this player for X amount. Got to see him. And I think that's, that's a core problem for Manchester United because we just have money to blow. Granted, it, it may be a similar situation for Arsenal, but it's the opposite situation where they feel like they want to just keep things going with what they have. And when there's a potential problem, maybe, maybe they'll fix it. But it seems like despite the position that you guys are in, you seem like you're on the up and up. There's obviously the concern that they may just ax Arteta um, because he's not producing. But I think you guys are in a reconstruction phase like we have been in. But honestly, Manchester United has been in the reconstruction phase for too long because we just keep sacking coaches. Right. And, you know, I know we've been talking a lot about the Super League, um, but, you know, it wouldn't be fair to not touch on Manchester United and in, in, in Arsenal because there are similarities, but almost like you said, like they're opposites in, in a way as well. Because um, right. I think that with Manchester United, they are, they are they're an extremely good team. When it comes, like when I watch Rashford and his pace and his and his skill and like I wish he was on Arsenal, honestly. Um, but I think I really, I honestly feel like Manchester United have the players they have, and they have enough players to challenge for possibly a title. 
I know their defense, maybe their center back pairings are pretty bad. Um, but when I look at your midfield, when I look at your your attacking options, maybe at striker you could do a little better. But I mean, there's a reason why you guys are second, right? You guys aren't you guys aren't shitting the bricks that much. But like you guys <laughs> well, weren't you know. in the title lead with a game in hand for a while, and you did blow that. But I've always yeah. been telling Manchester United fans is that I think you guys are probably one good coach away from actually creating something. Um, just because the thing with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is it, it's similar to Lampard in a way where I think, again, they kind of just do enough to, to, to stay um, in the good favors of whatever board they're they're under. Um, right. Because Ole, he has, he's lost every same semifinal he's been in. He hasn't won a trophy at, during his whole time in Manchester United. And I always tell people, well, you know, Arteta won two trophies. I don't want to brag or anything. But but the whole point is, like, I think this was a job too big for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. He should have just been interim in maybe a year or two. But at this point... Yes, like he was supposed right, to be originally. Exactly. And I'll just say, when they broke the news that they officially were going to give him a contract, I was like, no, we're going down right, the same problematic right. route. Exactly. So I envy Man United because they're near their second and they have, I think for now, you guys have a good amount of players that can actually do something. We have exactly. great players, but and and the thing is, and you know, even though we're second on the table, you're if you watch soccer consistently in the Premier League, you're not blind to see that yes, we're second, but at the same time, like what's with your team? <laughs> like I get questions like that. It's like what's with your team? You got like Bruno Fernandez, you got Pogba, you got Rashford, even mm. Greenwood's doing well himself. McTominay has had some come ups. Um, in the past like couple of games that he started in but it's like it's it's obviously inconsistent at times there's a lot of draws with the big teams so like the other big six um or big five um and then when it comes against small teams like the sometimes the the goal margin line will be very small right and it just seems like there's a lot more effort like physical effort being put in versus tactical effort, if that makes sense. Right. And it, it, it just seems like, yeah, we have the players, we have the individuals, but there's stuff that's just not connecting properly. And I always felt that the, the reason for that is you need a coach that knows how to win trophies. Honestly, simple as that. Um, yeah. But at, I think menus at a point where like, and I think Arsenal in the same exact situation where, if you sack um, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer or Mikel Arteta, who there's no one really on the market right now to really even come right. in and make a difference. Everyone's at a, That's everyone's a question at a, I'm at a club. constantly asking, right? right? It's who can we bring in? Like at this point, we, we have an understanding as top coaches. Mourinho's on the table like, again if you guys want to bring him back. <laughs> I don't think they're going to want to bring him back, but we who knows? We could be like Chelsea. We sack him and then we bring him back. Exactly. You know? He, he's a good, how do I say, he's a good uh, redemption coach. <laughs> um, but anyway, like, there really is no one out there. And that's why I think, like, my perspective on Arsenal is you guys should keep Arteta for his contract and see what he can do. Because from the games that I've seen, you guys have great synergy going on. I think that's one thing I've always admired about Arsenal is you guys constantly have great synergy, whether it's a bad year or a good year. Like, sometimes you guys may start off rocky, but eventually you, you pick up your pace and you guys look like Arsenal again, right? That's how I personally feel. And I feel like you guys are on the path to rebuild since um, Fenger left. Mm. Because anytime an error-long coach at leaves, you have to rebuild because it's not going to be the same as it was before. And I think there were also a lot of players that ended up retiring like in his last few years too. So you've had an overall team to rebuild and you've had Arsenal has had a lot of great purchases um, that are starting to take shape within the team itself. Yeah, I mean, Arsenal right now are they've got a lot of young, promising players coming up that I think that unfortunately we've been relying on them for a little bit too much. Like Emil Smith-Rowe, who's extremely injury prone and most of all, Bakaya Saka, um, he's starting to get wear and tired. These guys are only 19 and 20 and, and we're putting... Yeah. Yeah, they're way too they're to be too doing this kind of football this. plus international games, and it's like we've got these guys in 28, 29, 30s, and they're not, and they're on massive wages, but they're not doing even half the work that these <laughs> kids are doing. Um, but yes, to to kind of circle this back 
kind of intro this back into the into the Super League. Right after the, I think, towards when Manchester United was going to announce that they were out, uh, Ed Woodward resigned, right? Um, and so is that for you on the back end of this whole Super League fiasco, is that for you the board saying like, you know what, guys, we fucked up. Here's a firing or here's here's who here's who here's how we're going to fix it, but not really. Yeah, kind of, especially after they said, oh, we're he's going to resign. And I think when the news first broke, it was like, it's officially word. You know, we have a resignation from Manchester United's board, blah, blah, blah. And then more news came out. They're like, oh, yeah, he's only leaving at the end of this year. And I'm like, OK, but that doesn't feel like a yeah, real resignation. For the 2021. If it was a real resignation, yes, you would boot him. At the same time, you're not telling me that, oh, he's here for the rest of 2021 and it's October. He's here for the rest of 2021 and it's April. Like, I feel like that's not real progress. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Um, I don't know. When I saw that, I, I thought that there was going to be a bigger resignation. Like, I don't know. Yeah. Like. It just—it was very underwhelming, as if like this—if this is your attempt to kind of try and make it right, this is not starting off very well. No, at all. it's not. And I think at this point, like from other friends that I have that are also Manchester United fans, right. we for a while have been identifying, and I feel like this—this this is a circle problem because I'm mentioning it again. It's the owners. At the end of the day, they could sack the entire board, but the owners will just bring new people in to do their bidding. Even maybe even worse. Yes, people. exactly. Um, so that's actually a good point because I wanted to ask what with the whole European League fiasco and the, how those 48 hours transpired and how we can all say we were alive during that time. <laughs> what what damage or any type of ramification do you think there will actually be for the big six clubs? Not in terms of like we want this owner gone, but actual how would this actually hurt? the clubs itself honestly i'm still trying to figure that out myself i've just been keeping open ears to the ground to hear what is being said see it how that appeals to me like word so far has been to exclude like these owners from um premier league committee meetings right right like that's the biggest repercussion that they thought of at this point obviously we we as fans don't want the actual club to be penalized monetarily Right? right. We don't want our clubs to be penalized on our tables point wise or anyone else that has that hasn't had anything to do with the decision. Unfortunately, the biggest problem is how do we figure out how to penalize this owner, these owners um, in a different way if it's not them leaving the club? Like, I don't see I don't see how these owners could stay with the clubs and not and be penalized properly for what they've done. Like their selfish acts, I feel like requires their resignation. But unfortunately, right. it's not going to it's not going to go that way. I mean, that's kind of like the that that might be the hardest part to swallow out of all this is that they can do all this with um no type of backlash in right. terms of like actual um, substantial, tangible repercussions, right? Right. Um, it will always be directed at the club because that is th that is who, through what they are represented through, um, through the actions of the club. You know, it's not like these owners sign their names. It's always like Arsenal um, company, like it's through the company of Arsenal or through the company of whatever. Um, right. And I can't see, I, I really, and it's unfortunate, like as you said, we don't want, I don't want Arsenal to be deducted points. I don't want Arsenal to be given a transfer ban. I don't want Arsenal to be, um, you know, demised to the second tier and banished from the Premier League. Um, I want the actual people who made the actual decision to have the actual consequences that they deserve because of what they chose to do on behalf of the club, right? Right. But unfortunately, I don't think legality wise that is how it's going to work um and we kind of talked about this off the pod before but it's is is this attempt at an americanization of a european system that just does not work at all with the audience that is there 
um, you know, whether it's like here, you know, I always use Stan Kroenke, obviously, because of Arsenal, but, you know, he has football teams and soccer teams here, so I can definitely see him not made doing any research on the football culture in, in England. Or, yeah, they or, just make yeah, the purchase because yep. the club has such value and they've done mm. they've done their fiscal resource uh, research and they say, wow, this club is valued at X amount. We should get it. We could bring it to this value, so on and so forth. That That's kind of like the mindset of anyone who's an American owner in the United States. So why wouldn't that mindset transfer with them? You know, like just exactly. It's just crazy. Um, I try to think of what else would you expect when the Premier League started allowing kind of like these foreign owners to come into play, right? Um, Like if you think of Chelsea, they weren't really a powerhouse till Roman Abramovich came in and started spending shit tons of money. Um, I wish I could say the same for Arsenal, but I can't. I wish I could say that, but I definitely can't. I wish Manchester United could say that. Well, I guess Arsenal can. The better question I should ask you, though, I know you're running the cast, but <laughs> essentially, would you prefer an owner that just throws money at your problems and doesn't produce a lot of results, or you know, has ridiculous individuality problems like we do at Manchester United, um, or would you prefer someone like that's more conservative? I mean, from those choices. It, it depends because if you have some, you know, if you have the Chelsea model, right, you're winning trophies, right? You're, he throws money at your problem, but he's not afraid to, to, to make changes when needed to keep winning trophies, right? That's not – is it a great model? I mean, it works for Chelsea perfectly fine, yeah. it seems like, um, but some fans well. might not like it. Yeah, I think it works for them well also because look at their, like, their lone roster, I guess you could say. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Like they, at, they've got a lot of players, right? They at one point had more players loaned out than they had at home. I don't think any player could, any team could reach that type of feat. But I think, <laughs> you know, I feel like it's a similar situation for Manchester United. We've we've bought a lot of players to the point that sometimes I see players on the bench and I'm like, crap, that player is still with the club. <laughs> like Phil Jones, I always think of. Right. Or honestly, even Mata. Sometimes Mata, he, he's he, he's very sporadic. Oh, right. He's still there. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I keep forgetting I like, yo, Mata came here and he does great work sometimes despite his age. But like, you know, we don't we don't really do a good job of loaning players out like that. Not to say that Mata right. should be loaned out, but that's what works well, I guess, for Chelsea. They loan these players out for a long periods of time and then they come back. Sometimes. <laughs> Sometimes, right? <laughs> Unless you have your, what's it, Kevin De Bruyne, yeah, Mohamed Salahs, your Lukaku, right? One of one of the De Bruyne leave. brothers are still out on loan and attached to Chelsea. Oh, is he really? I think so. I, you know, last time I checked, I think it was like 2018, 2019. But okay, I I need to I need to refresh my list understanding on how many players Chelsea has on loan. But yeah, no, I understand what you're saying. It really does depend. Yeah. Um, so, but like to, I mean, to answer your question is preferably, I would rather have an owner who is willing to spend money, um, based on what they feel the club needs. And it's not, I mean, that's what kind of like why you have a sporting director, right? Or director of football, like to, to be able to say, this is what, this is the vision I have for the club. This is the kind of style of football we want, we want to play. Um, and then they dictate that dictate that for the next five to ten years to get to get to that end point, um, which is why you know when me and Derek talk on the pod about it, it's saying this is Adu's job. His job is not necessarily to get the exact players that Mikel Arteta wants, but the players that will be able to fulfill a specific style of football and that will also have resale value in a couple of years if it doesn't work out or if it does and it triples their their value. Right. Um, and that's kind of like why it's kind of like the willing situation. It's like, I don't know who made that decision and why they made it. Oh, Williams? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I, who, it, like, supposedly, Mikel Arteta really wanted him. But then I thought, well, Adu should have stepped in and said, like, what the fuck? No, he's like 32. <laughs> what, what? What? That's not going to work yes. out. We're not going to really that do was, that. That was really weird uh, to me, too. And, like, as you know, um, my partner from Just Kick It, he's a Chelsea fan. And right. he was like, if they want him. 
they can take him. And yeah. Arsenal, Arsenal, unfortunately, Arsenal has like some weird rep about that. They like taking other players off. They like taking players off other teams' rosters that are kind of like near the end of their career. And it always kind of leaves you. Club. It also kind of leaves you like with very like lots of question marks over your head. Like with right. David Luiz, you know, he was another case. Peter Cech, you know, right. all these great players, all these great players. Yes, but unfortunately, they were like <laughs> at the end of their career. And right. so, like, their greatness was kind of just, like, decent. Exactly. And I don't know. I mean, I, I it were, there were definitely some things where I was like, I'm not too sure what the plan is here. Because um, he's going to – the fact that they gave him a three-year deal and he's going to be 35 by the end of it, I'm like – I'm not too sure what the – I mean, this is the thing. If it was – supposedly Mikel Arteta wanted him and I felt like that was when do should have been like, no – but this is kind of like the idea, like the the uh, going back to the original point is like you want an owner that's willing to spend money and put the money into the club, but then also have people in place to properly spend it and allocate it properly. Um, because, again, the coach is, is a very temporary thing, no matter what. You right. know, you're not going to have a Narsen Wenger anymore or, or Sir Alex Fer- Ferguson ever again. Um, I think the closest thing right now is Sean Dyke at Burnley. And he's been there for like 10 years. But um, you want you want the owner to put people in place that you know you can trust to spend the funds properly and if the coach is sacked or if the coach ends uh, finishes his contract you're like okay and this is where the Chelsea model comes in okay we have bought players properly who will one have a good amount of resale value two are at a good age three can kind of fit any type not any type but fit most types of styles of play so that if we sack Marito Sarri, if we sack uh, Antonio Conte, if we sack Frank Lampard, a coach can still come in no matter what and do something with this team. And Thomas Tuchel has come in, taken Chelsea from, I think, ninth or 8th, got them fighting for a Champions League spot, and has them in the semifinals of the Champions League. Right. So that's not only... It's credit to Tuchel, obviously, for doing that kind of work, but it's also credit to Chelsea for allowing people at Chelsea to grab players that can work in many different instances. And that's the kind of model that I wish Arsenal had in terms of being able to recruit properly. Like not buying anybody from Chelsea ever again is would be like my number one thing on every <laughs> billboard in the training ground is we are not buying any more Chelsea players like ever again. Like right. Cause you guys, why can't we get a good number? player in their prime? That's like, I don't get it. I just don't get it. Like why is the, why does it have to be after their 29th year where like, come over to arsenal and that, and that's just a whole thing where it's like i'm not sure if it's an like a, a, a kia jarapkian thing like, like the agent for for a lot of these players or if it's like i know david louise and william have like a restaurant together stop in london yeah they do oh my god like, are you guys are we really doing this are, we, our are we restaurant? are we here to play football guys or yeah, are, we are, here, we are we here to, here to run cook a amazing portuguese food yeah we're we doing brazilian i don't know but regardless um a lot of these decisions, transfer-wise, have never made sense to me overall for Arsenal. Right. Um, even even Aubameyang and, and, and Lacazette, they were, bought, they were bought six months apart um, or transfer into apart. And even to this day, we struggle to get them both into a team right. in the same lineup. And it's like, what was the thought process there when we bought two strikers who play, who can't really play together but right. both cost a good amount of money. What, yes, like, that was very we, weird to me. I think I think other people were asking that question too. Um, wow. And it's it, it's it's all over the pitch. Like last summer, we were able to sell. We had the opportunity to sell Ainsley Maitland Niles for twenty five mil. I think it was around that range. Um, and they were like, "No, it's okay. We're not going to sell them." And then we kept Ainsley Maitland-Niles, then we kept Hector Bellerin, and then we brought in Cedric Suarez from Southampton out of nowhere, and I'm not sure why. A lot of questions into the recruitment process. But again, going back to your main point, if I had an owner, I would want an owner that spends money but knows, puts the proper people in place to actually allocate those funds um, and I think Chelsea, and you know, we talked about Chelsea a good amount, but it's just because I think that their model works extremely well for what they want to do. Yep. So I, as you were talking, I had a question pop into my head that I feel like, yep. for you, for anyone who listens, or anyone that's a fan of of soccer right now, especially in the UK and what's going on with um, the Super League, um, fundamentally speaking, 
it sounds like we have um, a very contradictory type of situation happening here. We have teams that want to operate like a business by moving into the Super League model, but at the same time, they have poor oper- they ha- they technically have poor business operating models because in order for you to gain revenue, when you compete in competitions, you have to win, right? But we don't make decisions. <sighs> We, right. we don't make decisions in order to win to make that money. We make bad business choices. So the buying of players is a business choice, or we've always known these are business choices, but they're critical to the business model. So it sounds like we kind of want to run a business, but we don't know how to run the business. Mm. And it's really weird. Like, I just thought about that right now. We want yeah. the money. We want to run a business and we want to run these clubs like a business, but we're not actually running them like a business. We're running them in the right way that they should be run, I guess. Um, right. Because if they were real businesses, very, they would have been yeah. bankrupt already. But because, <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously. It's like, a, yeah, you have a guaranteed amount of revenue coming in just because of you're, 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 you're going off the emotional attachment yes, of the product. Exactly. And, I, and it's a shame. Right. And I read, I think I was reading a book like many years ago soccernomics and the the whole essence of the book is soccer is not a profitable business profitable business it's not supposed to be Mm. and they want Mm. it to be but they don't make the actions for it to be that way but yeah i just thought about that right now it's a very like uh it's a conundrum type of situation where you want (laughs) you want something to be a certain way you make stupid actions for it to be that way and it never ends up getting to that point it's it, i mean that's a that's a really good point that soccer is not meant to be profitable but there is profit to be made i guess in a sense like it's not made to be profitable but it can create a profit right mm-hmm. um and it it, it, it it almost provides like a psychological conundrum of like you know philosophically yes like, oh my god like is this what it, is this what football is all about but Regardless, we've been going at this for over an hour, Melissa. Um, I want to thank you so much for coming on to the Arsenal podcast, providing your incredible insight in, into everything going on around football. And you're always welcome back on the pod. Thank you. I appreciate being on the pod. And hopefully everyone found our thoughts insightful today. I really hope so. Right? All right. Thanks, Chris. Huge thanks again for Melissa for coming on to the pod and providing her insight and opinion on what has been an incredible 48 hours for the Super League that's the end of this pod guys i hope you guys are all doing well i hope you guys are safe and your families are safe and we'll catch you on the next one